Well, this morning we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke, and so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 14, uh, that we'll look at a couple other passages today as well. I'm telling the message, so you want to be a disciple. And that implies that the person uh, is not already a disciple. And in fact, we need to realize that, that you aren't born a disciple of Jesus Christ. You have to be born again to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. No one comes out of the womb following Jesus. They have to make a, a choice as God draws them to himself. And, and that's true about a lot of things in life. You, you aren't something or someone until you do something or become someone. I remember a while back, a couple of my nieces wanted to learn how to snowboard. And so I came up to them. I said, so you want to be a snowboarder? And they said, yes. I said, well, I have to go up the mountain to do that. And I don't, maybe you've never snowboarded, but I'll give you a very simple instruction how to snowboard. How you snowboard, first you have to go up to a mountain where there's snow. And then you have to put on your feet a, a, a large skateboard, all right? And you, you bind your feet in the, this large skateboard, and they, they take you up let's say, even to a bunny slope. And it's pretty simple. All you do is get off the um, catamaran or whatever they're taking up there with, and, and you just point the board down the hill. All right? That's as simple as that. Put, put your feet in some bindings on a, on a large skateboard, point in the direction down the hill, and let it go. Now, that's as simple as it gets, but, but it's not quite that, what, easy. It's simple, but, it, I mean, you just point that board down the, the, down the slope, but it's not that easy. There's a, there's a few things involved that helps you learn to be a little bit better. Now, if you, if you only do it once, you've snowboarded. But if you become a snowboarder, you've got to be committed and willing to do it more than once. What we're going to see today is Jesus was talking about people who, who were thinking about becoming a disciple, or just like people committing to be a snowboarder. They had to learn just what it took to make that step to go down that hill. And, and let me tell you, you... You're not qualified as a person who has snowboarded just because you carried the snowboard, right? And just because you got on that which brought you up to the top of the mountain or part of the top of the mountain, and if you look down, if you never got on the board and went down the hill, you can't say that you've snowboarded. All you've said is you've carried the snowboard or you went up the mountain. Well, with Jesus, that as often was happening with people with him. They, they had been around him. They had kind of carried on some of the trappings about being a follower of his. But, but it wasn't quite evident that they had really decided that they were going to take that jump off that slope. And so this morning, we're, we're going to try to see that as we look at what, what Jesus has to say to us. But as I thought about, so you want to be a disciple, I thought we ought to begin at the beginning. Just like if you're a snowboarder, you have to know what a snowboard looks like and what you're attaching your feet to. And, and recognize, okay, here's the basics. I heard Vince Lombardi when he was coaching football and he had players in front of him. He would begin practice with the same. I want you to know, men, this is a football. He wanted to make sure they understand the basic, the fundamental thing they had to work with. Well, it's not a board or it's not a ball that you throw around that has an odd look to it that we're going to be talking about today. But we're going to be talking about what is the message that we're supposed to follow after, and who is the person we're supposed to follow after if we're really going to be a disciple. So really, if you look at your outline this morning, this, this, is, this is where we're going. We're going to look at what is the gospel, and you can say, what is the message of Jesus if we're going to follow him? Secondly, who needs to hear the gospel or the message and why? And then thirdly, what is required in truly believing the gospel? So today's message is all about the gospel. All right, you're still with me, at least two or three of you. All right, we're going to be talking about the gospel, and then we're going to interweave it in the, in the words that Jesus recorded for us in the gospel of Luke. What is the gospel? 
And for many of you, you're going to say, this is too foundational. This is too basic. But let me tell you, many, many, many people are confused about what is the gospel. It is simple, but being committed to it is not easy. Look in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, or listen to me as I read. This is, this is the classic passage describing the message of Jesus and what we're, what we're believing in or following after if we're all in on the gospel. What is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes this. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. And so he's saying, this, this is what I'm going to remind you of. This is the gospel that you, you, you heard and, and became acquainted with. And, and what is it? It's that by which also you are saved. So this is kind of the introduction of the message he's going to say here. The gospel is the message that you need to receive, as Paul told the church of Corinth, that you might be, this is the S word, what? Saved. So what, to begin with, the, the, the very first premise is that God loves you, and if he didn't love you, he wouldn't want you to be saved. But God loves you, and you can be saved. God is able to save you. Now, in many ways, people think, well, what do you, what do you mean by saved? I remember in L.A. there was this church that had a huge sign that said, Jesus saves. And for some people who had no idea about the message of Jesus, they could say, saved from what? Okay, what do you mean saved? Well, to be saved from something is to be rescued. And if you want to put it in a simple analogy, if you were out swimming in the ocean, you went a little bit farther out than you wanted to be, maybe you got caught by a riptide, and then you became exhausted, and you began struggling, keeping afloat, and you began waving like crazy at anybody on the shore, you would be hoping that someone would come out to get you and what? Save you or to rescue you because you're going down one, two, three, for the last time, and if someone doesn't come out, you're going to perish. You're, you're going to drown. You're, you're not going to be breathing anymore unless you can breathe underneath the water. So that's the message of the gospel is that, as Paul said here, he said, this is the message, this is that which I received, uh, gave to you, the gospel which I preach, by which also you are saved. So the message of the gospel is this, that all of us need to be rescued. All of us. Everyone here has to come to that place where they've been rescued by God. Well, then you might ask yourself the question, well, how do I get rescued? What is required in that being done? Now, if it was someone drowning out in the ocean, they would have these certain ways of grab you around, you know, your neck and, and kind of tow you in. Well, how does God rescue us? Well, this is what he said in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance. And so, again, if you want to look at this from a, a learning teaching environment, this is going to be on the... On the test. This is of first importance. You know you're going to be asked this. What is of first importance? And I also, this is, for I deliver to you of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. So if you look at what is the foundation of the gospel, it's one that we need to get saved. God loves us, but we need to get saved. Secondly, how does he save us? He saves us from that which is causing us to drown in our relationship with God, and that is our sin. He died for our sin. Now, if you ever forget what sin means, one simple way to see one dimension of sin is just look at the middle letter of this three-letter word, and it's the letter what? I. We all have I problems. Now, I don't mean necessarily that, well, look at, look, actually, if you look at people who live any length of time, 
Uh, it doesn't matter if you, you begin your life with 2020. The older you get, eventually you're going to need some kind of, of what? Correction. Because whether, whether that book gets farther and farther out or you can't see the things that are farther out and you need to magnify them, eventually maybe you get cataracts in your eyes. We all have eye problems eventually. Well, we're born with an eye problem. And the eye problem is that we want to live for self. We, we, we rebel against God. We, we, we live self-centered lives. We break His commandments. And God's a holy God says you need to be rescued from your sin. And what says Christ died for our sins, what He's saying there is He died in our place. We have a memory verse for the month, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. And so when we think about what Jesus did when he died, many people died, but he didn't die um, for himself. He died for us. He died in our place. He took the penalty for our sin, which was death. And this, this was all planned out from eternity past according to the scriptures. So number one, what is the gospel? It's God loves you and you can be saved. Number two is Jesus uh, died for our sins according to the scriptures. And thirdly, he goes on in this explanation of the gospel and he says, and that he was buried, and then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500. So the other part of the gospel is that Jesus died, or Jesus was buried and raised on the third day and appeared to many. Jesus has no right to claim he could rescue us from our sin unless he had, been buried, unless he had died, been buried, and then rose from the grave. That's his credentials, his, his ultimate credentials, that he had victory over our sin and victory over death. So that, that's, that's the foundation of the gospel. God loves us and we can be saved. How can we be saved? Because of what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus died for our sins. Thirdly, Jesus was buried and, and rose again and appeared to many. He had 500 eyewitnesses. Well, what's required of us? Well, that's getting back to the passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says this to the church at Corinth. You are saved if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Wait a minute. Well, what are you throwing in here, the Apostle Paul? What he said, you've all received it. You've all heard what I've been talking to you. This was of first importance. You knew this was on the test. You knew, you knew of all the things I said to you. You need to be listening here. And here's the message. God can save you, and you need to be saved. How he did that, he died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead, appeared to many, so we know it actually happened. But now you've got to believe it. But this is not just simply agreeing that the facts happen. You've got not to believe in vain, a futile, false faith. This must be a true faith. You must give your life fully and completely to Jesus. You can't just know that, you know, people can go down the hill with a stick on their feet, but you can too. And if you don't believe that you can ride a snowboard, you'll never get on a what? Snowboard. Now, some of you say, well, that's good because I don't ever want to get on a snowboard. <laughs> but the reality is, let's say, let's say you were in good health and you had the physical ability to do that. You, even as, as gifted as an athlete or as, as, as limber as you could be, if you didn't believe you could get down a hill safely on a snowboard, you would never get on a snowboard. Even though you believe you could, but if you never did it, this would be a faith in vain. Does that make sense? So that's the gospel. That's where it really matters. And, and some of you might be thinking, well, I've heard this before. 
and I I'm, I'm, hope you have heard this before many, many, many times. And so then now we go to the next question. Well, that's what is the gospel. Well, who needs to hear the gospel and why? Now, the first answer for all of us would be, well, people who don't believe, non-believers. And why? Because they need to get, this is the S word, they need to get, they need to get saved. Uh, Ephesians 2.8.9, familiar passage to probably almost all of us here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, not a faith that's in vain, but a true faith. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works that no one should boast. So it's a, it's a, it's a gift that you receive by believing in, in it fully and completely and truly. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, the, here's the message, is that you need to get saved because you're still in your sins and you are guilty before a holy God. But God is able and wants to rescue you and this is how he was able to do it because he died in your place. Theologians call this the substitutionary atonement work of Christ. He was your substitute on that cross. You should have been on that cross, but he was on that cross. And he, because he was the righteous lamb of God, was able to, to take on all your sins and be forgiven for your sins. And, and he had that right because he died and rose again. But you have to choose to believe in that and give yourself completely and fully to him. But what I want to add to today that most of us probably don't think about too much is the gospel is not only for non-believers, it's for believers. And that's why it's repeated over and over and over throughout the New Testament because we should never live without remembering what the gospel is all about. And this is what I want to touch on just really briefly is why should we who believe remember the gospel or it's because we ought to recall how we got saved. We need to, need to remember why we got saved. And then we need to be reassured if we're saved. Well, why is it important to recall how you got saved? John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. It is that if, if somehow you forget that you are saved, you, you, you will be way off the mark in terms of how God wants you to live. Yet, why, why do people somewhat get a little bit lukewarm or apathetic about their faith? Why, why is it that sometimes they put it on the shelf for a while and they say, well, I'll get back to it? Because they have forgotten how desperate in need they were for God to rescue, rescue them. Now, I dare say, and if we were a small group, we might take the time to talk about it, but uh, how many have ever been in a situation where you were close to death and there was an individual that somehow rescued you. It might not have been the ocean. It might not have been in, in a pool. I remember when I was, well, I don't remember a whole lot about it, but I was fairly young and first time I'd ever seen a pool and I'd, I'd never taken any swim lessons and I saw it and I was hot. I'd, I used to live in El Centro. That's, a, that's as close to hell as you can think of. No, <laughs> it gets pretty hot there. So anyway, so we, we'd somehow come up, I don't know, it's probably Orange County. I don't know where it was. But anyway, we got to a pool for the first, I'd never seen a pool. Saw the pool, I just went running, jumped in the pool in the deep end. Whew. Probably didn't even know, realize what was happening I was, when I was going down to the bottom. You know, my dad came and just grabbed me and brought me right back up. You know, I, I, I don't remember a whole lot about that because I was pretty young, but I've heard that story over and over and over again, and I'll never forget it because I wouldn't be here unless my dad rescued me. You know, and, and it kind of puts you humble because you realize you're not quite as smart as you think you are. You sh shouldn't always do the things you ought to think you ought to just, just do because that's what came in your mind. I might as well just do it. And you go, wow, 
I'd be dead now apart from that person rescuing me. And I've got some other stories to tell you as well. And I don't, I, I don't forget those people who came to, to rescue me. And it, 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 really, it really hits right at the pride of the heart, doesn't it? When you realize you're, you're not as smart as you think you are. And as you think about your life, never forget that moment that brought you to faith. And even if it was a process or pro, uh, you know, in, in how God grabbed you, never forget that you so desperately needed to be rescued. So why should, should it be preached or why should it be taught to believers? Because we need to remember how we got saved. We got saved not because we, were, we had anything going for ourselves. It was God who rescued us. But we need to remember why we got saved. Why, why did you get saved? Well, the first one is fundamental. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. You were guilty before a holy God. And, and I would say this. I, I'd encourage you to, to read the, the story in Luke chapter 7. And right around verse 47, Jesus is speaking to the one who wasn't getting it. He said, why are you allowing this woman to come and, and just, you know, express love to you in such a demonstrative way with wiping your feet with her tears and, and pouring expensive oil upon you? And, and he said, you don't really understand. This one who has come to, to us, she has encountered me before. And her sins that were great is so aware to her because she, she recognizes that. And here's the principle. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. But those who have been forgiven little, loves little. And what we need to recall, the gospel to our lives, to recognize, it doesn't matter how people look that are out at us from the outside, but from the inside, we all know that we had so much sin that God needed to forgive. And when we remember the depths of our sin, our love for him will grow. So we need to remember that we were rescued because of our sin. Secondly, Matthew 13, 44. This is the story, if you remember the story of Jesus was telling a, little, a very small parable in there, and he said, it's like the man who went out to a field and he discovered a treasure. And when he discovered the treasure, he went back and he sold everything that he had to get that treasure. And so when you think about the gospel, we need to remind ourselves, is there anything in this life that we would we would be willing to get to give up what we already have in Jesus? What price tag would you put on your, on your, on your uh, salvation right now? If you had as much money as Warren Buffett, or if you had the, much, if you had the power of, of a political leader, or if you had the fame of some actor, or if you had the ability of some athlete, if you had the ability to whatever it might be, would you, would you trade what you have in Jesus for that? What, what, take the list of uh, challenges you have, whether it be problems or whether it be health or whatever it might be. Would you trade all of that to be solved right now at this instant and give up Jesus? In John chapter 6, Jesus you know, fed the 5,000 and, and then all of a sudden he, he kind of raised the heat on them. So I want you to know now, I, I'm, I'm going to give you another lunch. I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. <laughs> and they, they were just shocked. And then he explained what I'm talking about. You, you've got to give your all to follow me. It's not, it's not just coming to me because you get a free lunch. And it says the crowd left him. And then he turned to his disciples and said, well, what about you? And they, and they simply said, well, where would we go? Because they had discovered that he was the treasure that once you found, you give up everything to obtain. 
Matthew 13, 45, you had that same idea where he says, when you find the pearl of great price, you'd give up any precious jewel you had. You'd give up everything because there's nothing more valuable than that pearl. And so when you reflect upon the gospel, that is the gospel. There, There isn't anything better than this. And it changes everything in terms of your perspective on life. Or Psalm 16, which has... It just states it in propositional form. It says this, uh, In you there are pleasures forevermore. In your presence is fullness of joy. Now, there are many unjoyful moments in our life when tragedy happens, when hard things come our way. But there is a joy that never leaves us because God never leaves us. And if there's a better life out there than in the presence of God, I would tell you to pursue it. But if there is nothing better than experiencing the joy of the Lord, to experiencing that He is the one, who He is the pearl of great price, He is the treasure in which you would sell everything to have, He is the one who can, who can take the guilt and shame of our sin and wipe it clean. We don't have to look for motivation in our Christian life. All we have to do is look back at the gospel. Isn't that true? So what is the gospel? The gospel is pretty plain. It's pretty clear. The gospel is God loves you and wants to save you. And he died on the cross for your sins and he rose again. But you must truly believe, not believe in vain. You need to realize the gospel is for everyone. It's for those who don't know him so they get saved. And it's for those who do know him that we might look like and live like we are saved. And so this is a backdrop. And Jesus has been doing that for two and a half years now. He's got some people following him. They aren't quite getting that this is going to be an all-in type of commitment. So look at Luke chapter 14, and we're going, to, we're going to look at how Jesus presented the gospel in very strong terms, in terms of what the commitment requires. This is right after Jesus had been having dinner, having a feast, having a, a celebration with religious leaders, those who had means, and and the crowd was on the outside, and they were probably thinking, uh, this, is, this is looking pretty good. I mean, Jesus, the one we're going to follow, he's going to be the one who's going to be pr- providing these great feasts, these great celebrations. And, and I've even heard, I, I wasn't quite in there, but I heard the rumor he wants to invite people who weren't invited. That sounds pretty awesome. And, and so they're looking at Jesus. Warren Barclay says this. They were looking at Jesus. He's, he's taking steps to, to initiate, inaugurate his empire. He's, he's initiating the good life for all the people who follow him. And if you think you're going to get the good life, you're going to be part of the one who, who's going to be leading the empire, uh, you, you want to follow. And so they did. Look at Luke chapter 14, again, verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, Jesus. And then he turned and he said to them, and I want you to understand, we, Jesus could attract a crowd, but he was, he was awesome at dispensing a crowd. And you're going to see this. He, he, he takes his followers and says, look, look, don't follow me unless you really want to follow me. And here's, here's where he begins. If anyone, so you want to be a disciple? Well, let's look at it. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. All of a sudden, they're in shock. This is not what we thought you were headed toward. We, we thought you were establishing the kingdom now. We thought we were going to be feasting with you. We thought our problems would be erased and, and the glories and riches of this world would be ours. And he said, let me, let me tell you, 
what the commitment to follow me is all about. And a disciple is a follower and a learner. You cannot be my disciple. And you know what that means in the Greek? You cannot be my disciple unless you hate your father and mother and wife and children. My mom was uh, in a life group on Wednesday, Wednesday the Word, and she said, when I was a little girl, I went to Sunday school, and they read this verse to me, and they didn't explain it. I never went back there again. <laughs> and, and as we read the Bible, when we hear, read the hard words of Jesus, Jesus is meaning what he's saying, but we need to understand it in a, in a clear way. In Matthew chapter 10, and the, you know who the best commentary on the Bible is? The Bible. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, here we have Jesus say it in a similar uh, context, but he, he says it this way, which makes it clear. Matthew 10, 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So he's not talking about true hate. What he's talking about here is that you need to realize this is the primary relationship. This is the most important relationship. And if family or children or spouses or people or things get in the way of this, you don't understand, you are to love me first. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, that's exactly what he said to the church at Ephesus that was a, was a great church in terms of all it was doing. I have this one thing against you. And this one thing was a pretty important thing. You have left your first, what? Love. Now you think, well, but how am I supposed to figure this out? This doesn't make sense because Jesus affirmed that we ought to honor your father and your mother. He, 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 he taught on providing for family. There was a group of people who said, well, I, everything's korban, which means it's, it's all been dedicated to God, so now I have no responsibility to the family. And he said, that's just ludicrous. So h- how could he call them to hate his father and mother? Because it's, it's a comparative term. And there were times Jesus would use very hard analogies to, to get the point across. Sometimes we don't get it, right? We're a little dull, okay? He's a little good. By comparison, your love relationship with me needs to be a hate relationship uh, to, to others because I need to be loved first. And you might be thinking, well, that, that sounds kind of egotistical. Well, no, we all do that in relationships. And if we don't, we better. You know, what does Ephesians uh, chapter 5, 25, what does he say to the husbands? He says, husbands, love your wives. Well, that's okay, love your wife. But he said, as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for us. And and, and whenever a a man marries a woman, whenever, when, when I married Alice, I told every woman on the planet that I was gonna love who first? Alice, right? Now, all the other women didn't really that care that much. But anyway, the, but what, what I, I'm telling Alice, I'm going to love her more than any other woman on the planet. Now, the genius behind this is when I love my wife as the most important person in my life, that helps me love the people around me so much better, Right? Because it's a primary relationship. And when we had children, you know, I was in youth ministry and children's ministry, but when we had children, each child that we brought into this world, it was going to be a statement. I was going to love my children more than any other children in the world. Now, does that mean I don't care about other children? That I don't make sacrifices for other people? No, I've had other people live in my house. But 
what I was able to do is this is my primary relationship. This is my, this is my primary responsibility to love my children. And then when my children have grandchildren, what did I do then? I just told my children, I now love your grandchildren, and then I love you. No, I don't. You know, it, you know it, it's primary relationship. And, and this is what he's saying here. Look, you need to understand, if you're going to love well in this world, you've got to put me first. There, there is no conflict here. Jesus, Jesus said that you ought to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Right? But then what happens is our love, if, if, it's, if we have a right relationship with God, we'll have a right relationship with everybody else. But if we can somehow, if we somehow mess that up where we start loving things and people more than God, then our love life will not be healthy. And he said that the mark of a Christian is our love. John 13, 34. If, by a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that all men will know that you are my disciples. And so our love for others ought to be like God's love for, our, for, for us. But it begins by loving him first. And that times get very practical. When you're struggling with priorities, when you're struggling with what should get your attention, what should t- get your devotion, it all should begin with God. And he says, you can't be my disciple until you come to that point where every relationship is subservient to your relationship with me. Secondly, then he goes on and he keeps the, the heat going in Luke chapter 14. He goes on and, and, and talks very plainly to those that might not have had family or relationships that, that they struggle with putting on a different priority list. He goes and he says in verse 37, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So what is he saying here? He's saying it pretty plainly. There, there, there's really no other way to take this. He says, he, he's saying you must be willing to suffer daily for Christ. And the daily part, as you look at Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says that if, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow me. Well, what does it mean to pick up your cross? You pick up your cross is anything that would be in the area of suffering. Anything in the area of what would it take what kind of trial or challenge would it take in your life for you to give up your faith? And, and the answer to that should be none, but there are many who go by the wayside when the, when the life gets difficult. And it could be from the outside in or the inside out where all of a sudden you're struggling. And, and when you're struggling, you're, you're, you're wanting to give up because it doesn't make sense to you. Well, how, how can there be a good God who loves me and, and allows these things to happen to me or to other people I really care about? And Jesus said, why are you surprised by this? You're living in a fallen world. Bad things are going to happen to everybody. And sometimes it doesn't look fair because something, sometimes worse things are happening to others than, than things that are good happening to you. And he simply says, you need to, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to be willing to pick up your cross and the cross was a symbol of suffering and death and then he goes on and then he tells a couple of strange stories or two or three strange stories look, look what he says he says for which one of you when you when he wants to build a tower does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it otherwise when he has laid a foundation and is not 
able to finish, all who observed it began to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So what's required in deciding to follow Jesus? You've got to love him more than anyone or anything else. You need to be willing to suffer daily for him. You must commit to finish what you start. There are phrases, and I've used them all, where I'm trying to plead with someone to respond to Jesus. And, and sometimes, you know, take an, take an old commercial, just try it. You might, what? Like it, okay? And sometimes I'll just urge people, just, just try Jesus. I don't think that's probably the best thing to say to people. Because, you know, people try it, they like it for a while, and then another flavor comes around, and I like another flavor. If you're going to follow Jesus, whatever you decide to start, you better finish it. And, and, and the sad commentary on American Christianity is we've, we've had a lot of people try Jesus. And where are they to be found now? And whether it's family or friends or people you knew in church, and, and maybe they, they tried them for quite a while, and then all of a sudden they're gone. Now, we're not, God's, we're not God. We're not judging them. But when people don't finish what they start, Jesus says, you can't be my disciple. And, and see, we need to realize that we, we don't finish it because we're so faithful and so good. It's because if we really want of his children, we're, we'll persevere with him. And there might be some blips on the radar here, but, but if we start something with Jesus, we need to finish it. There'll be failures, but it won't be a, a failing grade. There's a, I was reading this past week. Have you ever heard, I had never heard of it before, McCaig's Tower in Scotland? Anybody heard of that McCaig's Tower in Scotland? Just real briefly. It was built between 1897 and 1900, and it was to be a striking tower of a fanciful copy of the Colosseum in Rome. John Stuart McCaig was a successful banker in Oban, head of the North of Scotland Bank. In the spirit of public service, he mixed no small amount of family pride. He decided to build a very odd public building on the hillside overlooking the harbor. The project was intended to provide employment for local stonemasons, and it's supposed to be a great museum of art. Well, he did it for three years, and the reality is he died. And he gave no instruction for anybody to finish it. And right now, you'll see a third of a building up on the top of a hill that was supposed to be that magnificent building. And now what they call it, they call it McCaig's Foolish Tower. And it's, 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 it's a place of ridicule. It's a reminder that someone started something and never finished it. And the reality of that is true of many people who decide they, they might try Jesus, but they don't decide to finish what they start. And I don't know if it was at the beginning, as they got in, they didn't quite understand it, or they just never committed their life fully to Christ. But a disciple is one who finishes what they start. And then Jesus tells another story, which is kind of, kind of strange, but he hits the point. In verse 31, he says, or, or what king, when he set out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? The odds are two to one you're going to lose this war. And probably you could add some things in there. These 20,000 are a lot better than my 10,000 even one-on-one. -on -one. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So that none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. I said, well, where, where is that coming from? And the point I'm trying to make that I think Jesus is planning to make it, not only do you need to be willing to commit to finish what you start, you must give up ownership of everything you have. 
Now think about it for a moment. When two nations go to war, basically one nation wants what the other nation has. Would we agree with that? And if you're the nation that the other nation wants to have what you have, you're not willing to give it up right now, right? So you want to fight to keep it. Are we still, are we all still on the same page? So I say, I'm, I'm going to hold on to what I got. I'm going to fight to keep what I have. But then all of a sudden you realize, look at their army is so much better trained, so much more powerful, has so many resources compared to mine. I don't care how valiantly and courageously we fight, we are going to lose. So now you have, to, you have to step back and say, okay, would I like to go to battle and lose everything and die, or many of my people die, or do I want to go to the, 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 the peace table and say, what can we do to have peace? Now, it's humbling, and let me tell you, every commitment to Christ requires a humble response. And he says, what you have to do is humbly come before me and, and say, what I have that this party over here wants to have, I'm willing to give it up to have real life. And so as we think about the commitment that Jesus is calling for, he's saying, I, I, I'm calling you to realize this is the primary relationship. You need to love me more than anyone or anything else. I'm calling you to realize as you think about what it means, to, you've got to be willing to suffer. When, when the problem of suffering comes your way, you realize that I shouldn't be surprised about it. Jesus said, I'm going to have to pick up my cross daily. I need to realize that I need to, whatever I start with, with God, he wants me to realize this is a, this is a relation that ne- needs to finish. And, and doesn't that really mirror what marriage is supposed to be? Now, marriage is an imperfect relationship because you have two sinners married to each other but we have a perfect one that we're related to and so you need to finish what you start and then fourthly he says you look at you need to be willing to to lose to win you need to willing to surrender and isn't that really a good synonym of what it means to commit to christ i surrender i in fact there's a song i surrender how much a little i surrender all i give it up Whatever I have, I'm just a steward of. And whatever you need to use of what I have, you can use it. No one can be my disciple unless they come to that point. And then, he, and then he finishes with this last statement, which is confusing as well. He says, therefore, verse 34, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless, whether for the soul or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So I'm, I'm hearing this, but I have no idea what you're trying to say. But they probably knew a lot better than we do here. You know, salt is sodium chloride, right? And if you know anything about sodium chloride, it, it, that, that particular compound doesn't disintegrate. It doesn't, it doesn't diffuse. It, salt is always salt. So if you're, if you're true salt, it's going to remain salt forever. Well, then how can it become tasteless? How can it become useless? The only way salt becomes useless, and we're all created in the image of God, if it gets polluted. And we have been polluted from our sin, with, with sin, and int- until we get rescued, until we get saved, our lives from an e- eternity perspective is useless. Until we know Him, we, we can do some human good, but we, we can't do anything that's eternally good. And if your salt is tasteless, if your salt is useless, it, it's basically just going to be thrown out. And, and He said, if your life is, is that way, if that's the description of your life, then, then you aren't one of my disciples. Because when you become one of my disciples, you become salt of this world. And you will never be useless. 
because you'll be used in my hands to be both light and salt, preserving and flavoring this world. And so the point there is just don't, don't, get, don't stay in a polluted state. Don't stay there. And the only way to get unpolluted is to be cleansed. Just a physical analogy of that. It, in Israel, there's, there's the Sea of Galilee. You float down a little bit further, and there's the, there's the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea has so much salt in it that you can actually almost walk on the water here. That wouldn't have been a miracle if Jesus walked on the Dead Sea because it's so salty. You don't have to swim to be able to stay in the Dead Sea. You just lay there, and it just, it's so buoyant, it just keeps you up. But the problem with the Dead Sea is you can't, you can't harvest all the salt in there because it's been corrupted. There's so much gypsum in the salt, it's, it's useless. So what is Jesus saying? What's the so what of this morning? To, to put it in a phrase, if really, really going to understand what the gospel is, the gospel is clear. It's God wants to save us. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again. We must respond in true faith. It's the gospel is for everyone to get saved or to, to just to, to be so amazed at the majesty of your salvation that you live for him faithfully and fully. It's going to demand everything you are, everything that I am to follow him. And it's all about this. To receive everything that God wants you to give, you, give you, you have to give everything. You, you can't come to God with your, your fists clenched. If you want salvation, you've got to open them up. You have to give everything to get everything. Let's pray together. Father, we, we want to be disciples. And it begins with a start. And the start is coming to you fully and completely and giving you everything that we are and everything that we have. Giving you our present, asking you to forgive our past, and promising to live for you in the future. It's not going to be easy. But Father, we know that you empower people to come to you and then you empower people to live for you. And we need to remind ourselves of what that commitment is and then live it out. If we've never made that commitment, even today I would invite people to surrender their life to Jesus. And that's what true faith is. That's, that's a faith that's not in vain when we surrender all that we are to you and believe that all that you did empowers us to know you. Our sins can be forgiven and we can live victorious over our sin if we surrender to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.